Hello and welcome to the Saint and Centered Podcast. This is a reformed podcast for God's people to find their rest in the finished work of Christ. I'm Brian, I'm here with my co-host Daniel, and today we are going to continue our series through the five points of Calvinism. But I think before we do that, we want to kind of speak on something that's been going on in, in the world today and areas of different kind of celebrities that are speaking about something that sounds similar to Christianity, but is also a little bit different. I'll kick it over to Daniel. He can kind of explain. Well, yeah, I think it's one of the interesting things in the world at the moment where you, you have people like Jordan Peterson, Russell Brand, uh, even Douglas Murray to some degree as well. These guys standing up for Christianity and almost being pro-Christianity and, and have the flavors of Christianity, but don't quite get it. And so we're living in a really interesting time. I remember one of my Bible college lecturers saying that you know, just a couple of hundred years ago, Jordan Peterson would have been our greatest enemy, one of the greatest enemies of the church. And yet today, he's almost like a friend and an ally because we're just living in really bizarre times. <laughs> so uh, something popped up recently with Russell Brand. Uh, if, you, if you haven't looked at it, I, I do commend it to you. He, he gave this short talk about why he wears a cross around his neck. And it was really fascinating. Uh, and he was, quote, he was saying that, look, he said, look, I've, been, I've been reading the Bible lately and been reading Galatians in particular, and I was pretty excited about that. So I'm like, yes, you know, that's the book you need to read. And um, he was talking about Jesus, you know, this idea of him dying and then rising again in, in Russell Brand's heart. And I think he was at the end of Galatians 2. Just if I was to jump in his head and guess what he's trying to get at there, there's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I think that's probably what yeah. he was trying to get at. Yeah. So, but in his in his view, it's not something that's grounded in the once and for all finished work of Christ. It's yeah. It's kind of developed as I continue to put things to death in myself, then I can make him alive. That's what's fascinating about it, isn't it? It's it's sort of like this new age mixed with Christianity, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of a religion, and it's really hard to gauge whether we should be excited about this, <laughs> whether he's the kind of guy where Jesus would say. You're not, you're not far from the kingdom of God, mm. or whether it's just because it's so close, it's even more dangerous. Yeah, because it's, it's very, it sounds similar. There's a lot of the same language. It's kind of like if, you know, if you, somebody gives me a, a tofu burger and it looks really, well, it looks like a burger. It looks like a, a normal beef burger. And then you take a bite and you go, mm, that's not the same. That is not the same. It's different. And you, and you think, you know, a lot of these individuals who are speaking kind of pro-Christian ideas or pro-kind of Bible, you, you hear them and you go, well, that sounds... Right, or that sounds similar, and then when you take a closer look, you go, "No, that's 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 different. That's not the same thing at all." <laughs> yeah, and, and maybe this is this is why I think this is helpful for us to talk about just really, really briefly, because it it will give us some sort of concepts as we think about this stuff. Because it, I guess what what we would want to guard against is two things. One, on the one hand, we want to guard against naivety, where we're naive and thinking, "Oh yes, Jordan Peterson's talking about the Bible, and he's talking about." sin to some degree look at the audience he has it's huge yeah, and this is so encouraging right wow like this is really really good and and russell brand yes he's talking about jesus and he even had one out today uh, the day that we're recording this episode where he said I, I just want the voice of jesus to be inside of me i don't want the the voice of russell brand and you know you're sitting there thinking well yes this is really really good but i, I think that's a little bit naive to stop there Mm. Or, or to think, yes, this is. We need to be sharing this and saying, look, they've become Christians. We've seen this all before. Justin Bieber, Kanye West, and I, I was guilty of it. You mm, know, I, yeah. I was putting it all over my Facebook page, saying, yes, look, these guys are becoming Christians. Yeah. So I think we need to guard against some some kind of naivety here. But also, 
guard against just immediately saying, mm, no, this is a load of rubbish, they're celebrities, they could never be saved, and so this doesn't matter. Mm. I think actually it is quite exciting to some degree. It's encouraging, that, isn't yeah, it? That people like Jordan Peterson and, Rus and Russell Brand are, are discovering something in the Bible. Yeah. And we're just at an interesting point in, in human history right now where it, it's I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet. I know my name's Daniel, but that doesn't mean anything. It could be the case that we're, we're close to, to 400 AD where, where Rome collapsed. It seems like Western civilization is unraveling. And, and when that happens, what is there for people? And obviously, we know the answer to that. God, Christ, his word. That, that's a foundation we can stand upon in a crumbling society. And so I, I have a hunch that there'll be more of this, not less, in, in the years ahead. But we'll, we'll have yeah. to see. And I think the caution that we want to kind of offer to the church is the way we sometimes approach celebrities is as soon as they mention Jesus' name, we think, oh, yes, they're in. They're in with us. And I think we wouldn't act that way to other organizations but in the Jehovah's world. Witnesses, Jehovah's Witnesses, yeah. the Mormons. We, oh, yes, they're oh, with look, us. They use the same language as us. We, we must align with them now. And, and that, so we, we're, we exercise caution in those areas, but we fail to do it when it comes to um, celebrities or people who actually say things that so sound wise, right? They sound like it's similar to the wisdom we see in scripture. Well, I just would say, let's use some caution. Let's just tread carefully. We can be encouraged by it, but let's just look at yeah. it and see where it goes. And also watch the space a little bit and perhaps expect a little bit more of this and not, and not less in the, in the years ahead. Mm. And it, yeah, it could be the case that the best thing for the Western world is a collapse. It was pretty good for the Roman Empire. Yeah. It was when um, Christians began creating communities and, and that began to draw, you know, we have a sort of negative connotations of the medieval period. We call it the Dark Ages which is a bit of a shame because there was a lot of light actually in those ages, and perhaps not on justification, which is why we need Martin Luther and why we're Protestants and not Catholics. But there was still a lot of light, particularly in the, in the 400s. And, and so Christian leaders began to create communities where rather than, well, the, the, yeah, I guess in one sense, they reached out to the world and it drew the world in and kind of changed the world. It flipped it upside down. And so, so maybe this is a good thing, what's happening in yeah. the West, and, and, and expect a bit more of it. And the thing is, is what we see is, is when, when the world kind of falls into this moral plight, this dilemma of just, you know, all of the standards and all of the kind of sure foundations go out the window because they, they get rid of God and they get rid of the foundations there. And then they start to question morality and things just kind of descend into a very dark place. Well, well that's where the church grows. That's where the church kind of offers a light in the darkness. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm with Daniel. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm sitting there praying at home saying, oh, yeah, bring the destruction of this society and make everything fall apart so that the church can grow. But if God so chooses, that you know, he has in history glorified himself through these timelines. Yeah, yeah, so true. And, and just, just briefly before we get back into our, our discussion for the day, just with Jordan Peterson and Russell Brands, this is where I think that it sort of ties in with, with what we're championing on, on our episodes. And and that is that they have quite a good anthropology. Not great, but quite good. I think Particularly Jordan, Jordan Peterson, Peterson said, like, I, I, we all have a Hitler or Stalin in yeah, all of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jordan Peterson says, we all have a Hitler in us. Russell Brand's, uh, I think, getting better on, on that stuff too. But, but the real danger, and this is, this is the issue now, is their, their response to the problem mm. and their solution. So rather than, there's a Hitler in me, and so what I need is a resurrection. I need a rebirth. I need someone to do something for me. Jordan Peterson um, is, it particularly is, you know, speaks often about trying harder and making your bed when you get out, you know, get out of your bed in the morning and 
trying to be a better person and Russell Brand's more new agey. And so we, we would just warn you about that. I think uh, we would say that these guys have quite a good anthropology, but a terrible soteriology, one that would damn you and lead you to hell. It's not a saving soteriology. Um, that means salvation. Yeah. They have a, a wrong salvation. And that's what's, salvation. It's what's most unique and distinct about Christianity, right? The, the gospel. Jesus has come into the world for sinners and like us, and he has done the work to wash us clean and make us right before a holy God. And if you remove that aspect, that element gets thrown away, then you've lost. It's no longer Christianity. It's something different. And so, yeah, they might use the same language. They might even refer to the same book, but they're not us. They're not the same as us. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So then uh, now I think what we'll do is just dive right back into the topic of the day, which is continuing the series on Calvinism. And you might be thinking off the back of our episode last week on total depravity. You know, if we're really like that, if that's our nature, we're kind of totally depraved. We can't do good. We can't even do the good of believing in God. We're so lost and corrupt in, in sinfulness. Not that we just do nothing but evil and we're just as bad as we possibly could be, but that the sinfulness of us touches every aspect of us so that we can't even believe in the gospel. Well, if that's true, how on earth can any of us be saved? Yeah. And so that, that well, unconditional election is the answer. And that's why all five points of Calvinism hang together. And so if I'm, as Brian was saying, if I'm totally depraved and I'm dead in my sins, well, is there anything in me that warrants God to move towards me and save me? And the answer is obviously not. It must be unconditional. It cannot be conditional because I'm dead in my sins and I'm totally depraved. And so while yeah, a lot of people, and, and we were there too once, don't like unconditional election, it is the natural implication of believing in total depravity. Mm. If you believe in total depravity, you have to have unconditional election. What does it mean? Well, it means if you're a Christian, it's because God decided to save you long before you were born and long before you even realized that you needed saving. Uh, when you came into the world, the Father loved you. And uh, when your heart swelled with joy in the gospel, you were already on the roster. As God saved you from before the foundation of the world. Unconditional election means that, uh, that before there was even a creation, before God made anything, he had already set his heart upon you to save you and redeem you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we say the terms unconditional, we're saying there are no conditions for God to choose you, nothing in you. So it's not that, like some would say, that God looks down the corridors of time and sees those who would choose him and then, then chooses them in return. Uh, that's a circular uh, argument. That's circular logic. There's never a starting point there. You know, who does God choose? Those who choose him. Who chooses him? Those who God chooses. It's, it, there's no starting <laughs> good, point. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a logical fallacy. And so what we're saying is God doesn't look forward and see anything in you, anything that you'll do, whether your obedience or your faith, and then choose you. We're saying unconditional. He doesn't depend on you for his choice. In his sovereignty and in his being as the big God, the one who declares everything to be as it should, he chooses you of his own will. Yeah. And the reason why this is such comforting news and why it's a pillow for you to rest your head upon is because, well, it's, it's, it's because there's, there's nothing in you that can change that status. So you are, if you're a Christian, you have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life and your name will never be scrubbed out because it's unconditional. 
And we all know what it was like. Well, I think most of us know what it was like when we were at school not to be chosen, where you're overlooked. You know, you're on you're on the football field and they're doing that. You choose two leaders and then they pick people. They last no, again. Yeah, no, no one wants you on the team. Well, if you're a Christian, God wanted you on the team. God loves you and he chose you and he picked you and he selected you. And, and that's really comforting. That's so huge. It, it, it changes everything, doesn't it? Mm. It, leads, it ties into adoption, which is where Paul goes in Ephesians 1. You know, uh, we are, we're chosen sons of God. Why does he choose you? Not, not for anything good in you. Not oh, for really? It's not because I'm bad. a great guy? It, no, it's, it's, it's out of his goodness and his own graciousness that he chooses. We don't know why. But he chooses you before the world was ever created, before time even was, he has called you his own. And then it, throughout history, he, he makes it so. Yeah. And one of the places we see that is in Romans 9. So Paul does something really amazing here. And, and he, he begins by asking a question at the beginning, is Christianity God's plan B? You know, why, why, why does it seem like God's word has failed? Is that no, God's word hasn't failed with all of these Jews rejecting Jesus. Because it was always by election. It was, it, was, it was never race, it was grace. It was never merit, it was mercy. It was always God's sovereign choosing. And what Paul does is he, he, he's an absolute genius. He, he goes to a point where you cannot argue that it was because of anything in them. He picks Jacob and Esau when they're in the womb. So before they've done anything good and bad. And this is what Paul says, Romans chapter 9 in verse 10. He says, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, he was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What? Oh. Yeah, and so I think naturally the how and the what, I get that because you're naturally repulsed by that by saying, that's, that's not fair, is it? How, how is that possible? But the scandal isn't that God hated Esau. That's really obvious. The scandal is that God has chosen and loved Jacob. In episode three, we, we spoke about Jacob. And did you come out of that episode thinking, you know what, Jacob is a really, really, really good guy, even after God chose him? Like, no, he's a terrible guy. Mm. If you're going to pick anyone, you pick Esau. And yet God, God doesn't work that way. You see, for, for salvation to be grace, it cannot depend on human works and will. It must depend on God who has mercy. Hmm. And, and you might be sitting there thinking, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. How can that be the case? And you know what? Stay with us. Because the Apostle Paul anticipates you asking that question. And so the very next verse, verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? If God chooses people before they've done anything, how on earth is that fair? And just quickly as a side comment, some people will say, oh, it's not Jacob the person and Esau the person, it's two nations that God is speaking about. As if that makes it, I don't know how that even makes it better anyway. Yeah, have, you, have you heard that, Brian, where people will say? He still chooses, and now it's more than one person, it's yes, an entire yes. people. And he says, I'm going to reject this whole group of people. And it's like, you've, you've made it worse. And, it's, yeah. and then our argument will still stand. And, and also, it's just not what Paul is doing. So, so that, that's to, to do a redemptive U-turn. Paul is doing the opposite of that. He's looking at this text that is about two nations, correct, in Malachi. But he's actually taking that and then applying it to individuals, mm. Jacob and Esau, in the womb. Yeah. So, so is that fair? It seems like it's not fair. So if you have that question, stay with us. It's a good question. Is that fair? 
How does Paul answer? By no means. But he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Hmm. What is Paul doing? Paul is telling us something very, very basic, and that is that God is God and you are not. Hmm. And notice what he does in Romans 9. It's really, really clever. Every time that Paul quotes the Old Testament, he doesn't quote someone saying something about God. Every single time he quotes God as God spoke the words himself. And so as though he brings God into the dock and and lets God speak for himself. And what God is saying is, hush, my child. Mm. It's enough for you to know that it's all of mercy and it's all of grace and it's none of you. Be quiet. Be humble. I'm God. You're not. I'm the one who chooses. You, you're asking questions. You, do, you don't need to know the answer to all of these things. You're just a creature. Mm. I'm God. If you, if you look at the way that Paul ends that passage and he reminds them of Pharaoh's story and he says, look, okay, then God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And we, also, we often think about, especially in Pharaoh's account, how's that fair? He's hardening some and he's showing mercy to some. Is he making it impossible for these people to believe? And I think. Luther would argue that the way he hardens an individual is by stirring up the total depravity that's within the man already. Uh, And the only way that a person is to be brought out of that is through the merciful act of God, bringing them to life and pulling them out of the grips of their total depravity, although it will still remain in their Christian walk, and giving them eyes to see the glorious God who has been kind to them. And so the hardening is just him. Um, not providing that grace to those people. And because of that state that they're in, mm. anything of God stirs them up in even a hardened, a more hardened place. And, and he's giving Pharaoh what Pharaoh wants, isn't he? Mm. It's, it's not like, so, so don't picture Pharaoh the good guy in Exodus 1 and 2. He's a really just great chap. He's a lovely man. And God comes along and God just puts evil in his heart because he wants to harden him. Is that the image you get in Exodus yeah. 1 and 2? Yeah. No, he's, he's an evil, evil, evil man. Yeah. And when God hardens his heart, he's just giving him what he already wants us. We're not sinning in a way that turns God into a puppet master where he pulls all the strength and says, I'm going to make you sin this way and harden your heart this way. No, no, Pharaoh's heart and will is at play here. He is sinning in his will alongside of his nature and God's sovereignty. He is choosing for himself. His, his heart rejoices in the evil that he is doing. His heart rejoices in the hardening of his own heart, and he continues to do it. That's, that's who he is, and that's what he wants. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and that means that there's, there's no one in hell that doesn't want to be there. Mm. Obviously, now that they're in hell, they don't want to be there. I mean that. But there's, there's no one who, who's walking on earth that's not elect, that's thinking, oh, I just wish that I was elect and that I was one of God's children. Mm. No. The people in hell didn't want God. And that means the reverse is then also true. There's no one in, in heaven who doesn't want to be there. It's not like God just changes people against their will in the sense of, you know, and then I just, I still hate God, but I end up in heaven because God elected me. That's ridiculous. The Bible doesn't teach that. And there's, there's two things going on, isn't there? There is God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And, and God uh, regenerates us at the level of the will as well. And so now I will God. Why? It's not because I worked it up. It's not because I wanted to, but God has made me want to. And that's not enslaving. That's freedom. Absolutely. I was a slave. Now I'm free. 
Now, now other places that we find this in the Bible, I think another helpful place would be Ephesians 1, um, verses 4 to 11. So even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And so there again, you, you have, it's God's will, God's sovereign will, where he chooses us before the world was created, before anything ever was, we have become his own. He's marked us. Now, what we're not saying here is God has a magical hat in the sky that he draws names out of and says, I'm going to choose this one. And I'm going to choose that one. We don't know the reasons for his choice, but God who knows all things is, is never surprised by anything and never learns anything. He doesn't just grab names out of a hat. He chooses us for a reason that we don't know, but he has a reason and he chooses us as his own. And this is before the world was created and he marks us for adoption, to be brought into his son, Jesus, and called his children. This mm. is something that mm. we can rest in to yeah. know that he calls us that long ago. It's comforting. Yeah, so good. And so, so, yeah, so the response of election is look to Christ. I mean, back there in Romans 9 again, look at verse 5. Who is he? He is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And so, so you might be worrying, and I, I think most of us have been there before, and you're sort of panicking about whether you're elect or not. So, oh no, like if, if God has his elect, maybe I'm not the elect. Or mm. how does Calvin pastorally respond to that panic and that question? This is what John Calvin says. He says, look to Jesus, for Jesus is the mirror of your election. If you're worried about whether you're elect, look at Jesus. Who do you see? If you see him as your glorious savior, your only Lord, you're looking at your election. Mm. Don't, don't try and look at some sort of abstract, mystical election. You won't find it. Don't try and jump into God's brain. You can't do that. You can look to Christ. And if you look there, then you won't be afraid. Don't look at your track record. Mm. That's a losing battle. Because, you know, one day that you, you, you're, you're doing quite well, you're, you're running in this race, and then the next, you can't even get out of bed, spiritually speaking. Don't even, don't even look at the size of your faith. That's right, yeah. Don't, don't look within yourself. Look to Jesus. The question is a yes or no. Do you believe in Jesus Christ and his work? Yeah. Yes or no? Not how much do you believe? Do you believe enough? Do you believe? Yeah. And, and you know, if you look at Acts 13.48, and it says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So who believed? Those who were appointed to eternal life. Do you believe? Then you were elect. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, I, lo I love where Paul lands in Romans 9, how he concludes. He says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so don't, don't try and worry about your election to go, oh, no, am I elect or not? Look, look to Jesus Christ. He's the mirror of your election. And if you believe in him, you seriously will not be put to shame. Amen. L let me just read a, a quote from Spurgeon before we move on. I love this. this. This is what Spurgeon says. He says, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. <laughs> And I'm sure he chose me before I was born, or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me. Mm. For I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with such special love. Mm. You know, the comfort here for you as an individual, as you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, how does this land in my life? Well, the doctrine of this point of unconditional election teaches you that God chooses you on a surer foundation than yourself. 
So he doesn't look forward through time and see all the good stuff that you're going to do or how much you're going to believe in him. No, he chooses you according to himself in his own sovereignty and his own being of, of a gracious and holy God. And he decides before the world was ever created, before you ever did anything good or bad to call you his own. And so he chooses you with empty hands, not because of anything in you. And so before you've can really answer back to him, well, what about this stuff in my life? Or what about that? He goes, no, no, no. Before you were even born, before the world you were mine, it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on anything you're doing or, or anything you've done. You, you are mine because I have decided so. Mm. Well, how about we deal with some objections to unconditional elections? And some of those objections would be, well, why evangelize? You know, we, we hear this one all the time. Yeah. Yeah. If, if God is sovereign in who he chooses and that's unchanging and you can't twist God's arm and make him change his mind, well, what's the point in evangelizing? The hyper-Calvinists would say, no, you don't have yeah. to. It just happens. Yeah, yeah. you don't need to because God has his own and he'll elect whom he has elected. Yeah. And Spurgeon's response to this is just so good. He says, look, if God had put a, a yellow strip on, on the back of every elect person, then all I would do is walk around lifting up people's T-shirts and looking at their, their yellow strip on their back and know that they're elect. But since he hasn't done that, I preach the gospel to all people. And then those who come, those, who, those are the ones who are elect. So you have that passage in Acts 18. Verses 9 to 11, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you or to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. Mm -hmm. So, so the, the, the kind of strength of, of God's word to Paul is go out, be fearless because many of these people in this city belong to me. Right. So you can go out knowing like, I'm going to pre preach the gospel and people are going to turn to God, not because I'm convincing, not because they don't want to do me harm or they want to see my safety or they like my personality. They're going to believe because they belong to him already. Mm, so true. So true. And another good passage is in Matthew 11. It's one, it's one of our favorite verses in the whole Bible. I'm speaking on Brian's behalf here, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure he'd agree where, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls. But what we sometimes miss is what Jesus says directly before that. And so what, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, Father in heaven, I thank you that you have hidden these gospel things from the wise and have revealed them to little children, for such is your gracious will. And so Jesus there is saying, God chooses who's going to be saved. God blinds and hides himself from the wise and the sage of this world. And he reveals himself to little humble children that, that long to know him. So, so, so God makes a choice. And then immediately after, Jesus then turns and says, anyone, whoever you are, come to me and I'll give you rest. That but, seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? It's not. And the beauty there, so you have this, there's a quote, I can't remember who it's from. I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, he, he says that you're standing in a room and there's several doors in this area. And then one of the doors says, come all you are, who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And so you go, that looks like a good door. I'm going to walk through that. When you walk through, you look at the other side of the door and above it, it says, behold, before the foundation of the world, I have chosen you. And you think, wow, okay. 
that's amazing. So there's this general call, but to those who hear and walk through the door, there's a specific and particular call that was founded on something that happened before the world was ever created. Yeah, and so, so, so the, the other objection would be, why pray? If God is sovereign, what's the point in praying? Because he's just going to do what he wants anyway. How would you, re- how would you respond to that, Brian? Because I'm sure most of us have had that objection, and sometimes it's hard to know how to respond. But what, what would you say to someone that, that would say that? Yeah, so, so I would say that God is sovereign. I think when you, when you look at it that way, you're almost limiting his sovereignty. Because I would say God is sovereign not only in the result, but in the means that get us to the result. So yeah. God has decided in his wisdom and sovereignty to orchestrate all of human history in response to our prayers. And so he sovereignly chooses the prayers that we will pray and he, he, or, he kind of guides us in our prayers and then responds to those prayers. So every aspect of the world, of the universe, of creation unfolds the way that God desires it to. Now, in saying that, we're not saying that God is a puppet master again. He does that by using our own wills, by using our own choices that line up with the immensity of his sovereignty. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, God, God uses means, doesn't he? Uh, and the other thing is, if God is, is not sovereign, why would I pray? Mm. <laughs> if God can't answer my prayers, what's the point? If, if God can't override people's wills, why would I pray? So when I, when I pray for my, my lost loved ones, how do I pray? I, I pray, Father, please open X person's eyes. Please save them. Hmm. If God is not sovereign, what's the point of me praying that prayer? Because you can't answer it anyway unless that person for, makes the first steps. And the thing there too is, is one objection that somebody might have to that statement is, oh, but doesn't he already choose who are his before the foundation of the world? So you're praying that this person might be saved, but if they're elect, then they will be saved. What we're saying is, no, no, God is so big and sovereign that he counts for your prayers. In everything, he is the one who's outside time and space before the world was created, and yet he determines the way he's going to unfold the world and salvation and his elect. Everything is all working together within grandness of his sovereignty. So as we close this episode, here's what we want you to know. If you're spending your days looking at yourself, and your failures and your successes or the strength of your faith and trying to find rest there, what we want you to hear is that rest comes on a more sure foundation. You are held by the sovereign God who has chosen you before the world was ever created. And that is the strength of your bond with him. It's not you. It's not your faithfulness. It's not the strength of how much you believe in him. It's rooted in a God who is bigger and has more strength than anything you could ever imagine. And he grabs you tightly. And he has grabbed you tightly from the beginning of all creation and before creation. You are his because he wants it so. Amen. And that, that concludes this episode on, on Calvinism, unconditional election. We pray that it will be a blessing and a comfort to you. And if you have any questions, maybe you're still sitting there thinking, but I just, I just don't know about this. That's totally fine. Feel free to send us an email or message us on, on social media and we'll get back to you. And um, thanks for listening and we'll see you again next time.